How are we doing? All right. That was that was okay. That was not great. Let me try that again. Hey, how you doing? All right. We're getting warmed up now. We're going to have a good time, right? All right. Hey, well, I'm so glad you're here. We had a chance to meet. My name is Chris, and I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here at BT Church and the privilege of taking us into God's Word today. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, why don't you meet me in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, your physical or digital copy of God's Word text will be on the screen as well. And as you turn there, let me just uh, say this. We say it each and every week. At BT, we believe in a culture of celebration. And celebration is a discipline. And like any discipline, if you don't do it, you get bad at it, right? And I think the reason why there are grumpy, cranky, grouchy churches today, uh, filled with grumpy, cranky, grouchy people, is because they've stopped celebrating the work of God, right? It, It is a biblical thing to celebrate what God is doing. And so celebrate these amazing realities with me. Uh, that God is doing here at our church. So far this year, 279 people have received Jesus as Savior, calling upon His name for salvation, and 183 people have taken the next step of obedience by going forward with believers' baptism. 183 people. And uh, we call that believers' baptism because we don't believe that baptism uh, provides salvation. We believe baptism demonstrates salvation, okay? Uh, salvation is provided by Jesus alone. It is a free gift of God, uh, and it's not based on what we can do. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so baptism is not a work that secures it. It's, it's an act of obedience that displays it. And uh, we celebrate those 183 people that have gone forward. Last week, I had the great privilege of baptizing my 12-year-old son. And so uh, he's my favorite of the 183. Sorry for everybody else. But... Um, and sometimes we talk about these numbers, and it's like, man, that's so many, and that's so great. What does that look like? And, and each week is different, but let me give you uh, an example of what that looks like. Last week at our five campuses, nine people came forward saying that they've given their life to Jesus. So nine people received Jesus as Savior last week, and three people were baptized across our five campuses last week. And so that's what's happening week in and week out. People are making the decision uh, to follow Jesus and to be obedient in baptism. We believe that's worth celebrating. So... Uh, Right now what we're doing is we're in uh, a sermon series called Saints Together, and this is week five. Next week we will wrap it up, so just so you know, heads up, next week is last Sunday of the series Bring a Friend Week. So we're going all out, you don't want to miss it, refuse to come alone, tell somebody this week, you got to come to church with me, we're wrapping up a sermon series. Uh, But this is the second to last week, and what we're doing is we're talking about the importance of community specifically in the church, right? Well, what does it mean to do life together? H- how do we help each other out when we lean on each other? And we've talked about how doing life together as saints helps us face adversity. We've talked about how doing life together helps us stand firm in the midst of an ungodly culture. We've talked about how doing life together helps us have the eyes to see things the way God sees them. And today, we're going to talk about what, what, what are the, the markers of a culture of community? What are the identifiers? What are the characteristics of this culture that we're called to live in as a community of saints? Let me say this, if it's your first time with us, again, one more time, welcome to the VIPs. Make some noise for them. So glad you're with us. If you're in the room or online, and again, let's welcome the BT Online family one more time. But, but if it's your first time or you've been out for a few weeks and you want to get caught up, let me just remind you that you can catch all of our past sermons online. You can find them on our website. You can download our app. Or another easy way to do that is go to YouTube and search BT Church. And when you do that, 
uh, go ahead and subscribe to that channel uh, because then you can uh, stay up to date with all the videos, not just sermons that we provide for you. In fact, I haven't said this, but let me take it a step further. If you haven't already done so, go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel and then the little bell right there next to it, click on the bell because then you get notified every time great content is provided. So anyways, um, so that's where we've been. You can get caught up if you've missed them. But today we're going to look at Acts chapter 5 and specifically we're going to walk through verses 17 through 42 as we talk about three markers of a culture of community. But let me give you some context of what's happening in the scripture leading up to Acts chapter 5 verse 17. So, you know, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, he ascends up to heaven, right? He, he, had, he had resurrected, came back from the dead. He hung out with his followers for a while, and then he is with them, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to go away. It's going to be good for you. I'm, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says that they're going to be his witnesses across the whole world. And the reason why they'll be able to do that is because they're going to be filled with the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power. And that's what happened. The disciples of Jesus, these, these guys who had really kind of ran in fear at his crucifixion, they are filled with the Spirit. And, by, and being filled with the Spirit, they have received power according to the Spirit, and they are going out, and, and, and Peter preaches a sermon, and thousands of people get saved, and let me just say, <coughs> excuse me, by the way, if you wonder, like, oh, you guys are always talking about people getting saved, I don't know how I feel about it, or if that's right. If, if you're not sure that you agree that we should celebrate specifically what God is doing, just read the book of Acts. Because all through the book of Acts, it says, Thousands of people were added to their number. Multitudes were added to their number. More people, and, and it, it's celebrating not what man does, but what God does. And so people are just giving their lives to Jesus, amen, and they're responding. And, and then some interesting things happen. So uh, in Acts uh, chapters 3 and 4, the disciples are ministering, and there is a man who was lame. And just for clarity in today's vernacular, it doesn't mean that he wasn't cool. It means he couldn't walk, right? And so like old school definition of lame. And so, right, it's not like God healed him of his, you know, poor fashion choices. Uh, God healed him of his inability to walk. And, and so God healed this man who was lame through the disciples. And so, so he heals him through the disciples. After that, it says 5,000 men came to faith in Jesus. That's pretty cool. And then they got arrested, right? That's like, woo, woo, right? That's the other side of the roller coaster. They got arrested. They got released because there was no reason for them to be kept in prison. And then they got warned, don't do this anymore, right? So, so it's an interesting course of events leading up to the end of chapter 4 where the disciples have, after being arrested and released, they pray for boldness. And in Acts chapter 4, they pray this prayer for boldness. And it says at the end of Acts chapter 4 that the result of their prayer for boldness was that they were all filled with the spirits. See, that's synonymous, by the way. When you are filled with the spirit, boldness is just an afterproduct. And let me just say this before we move on today. I believe that one of the things that, that, that is affecting our churches today is, is people who have said yes to Jesus and are not daily praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, there's some theology and different opinions. I'm not going to get into all of that. Let me just kind of say what, some things that, that I believe and then one thing that is kind of inarguable in the Scripture. So I believe that when you say yes to Jesus, when you receive Jesus as your Savior, you receive full access to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When you receive Jesus, you receive the fullness of God. Now, just because you have received said fullness doesn't mean that you will always walk in it. 
Because we can choose to walk in sin even as believers. And what we need to do is we need to daily pray that the Spirit would fill us again. In Ephesians, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, hey, don't get drunk, right? But instead, be continually filled with the Spirit. There's this instruction from Paul to the church at Ephesus, continually be filled with with the Spirit. And here's the deal. It, it's the Spirit that brings power. And the Spirit is not a an it. The Spirit is not this force. It's not Star Wars, right? Sorry for all the Star Wars fans out there. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. And we pray for the Spirit to fill us. And this is why it's so critical. Because when you are filled with the Spirit, you have access to the power. And that's called victorious Christian living. When you do not pray and live filled with the Spirit, guess what you forfeit? Power. And when you forfeit power, you live with the wrong community. That's why there's churches today that are affirming all these things not in Scripture because they are no longer being filled with the Spirit, therefore they are not operating in power. Lastly on this section, before I move on, this is you know just for free by the way, why we need to daily pray for the filling of the Spirit. You know why? Because we are leaky people. <laughs> Paul also in the letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, he would say, let no, whole, let no unwholesome speech flow from your mouth. Right? Don't, don't talk bad. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't slander. He would say, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth and then he would say in verse 30, do not grieve the Spirit. So as we grieve the Spirit by not living our lives in surrender to Jesus, in essence, we are leaking the Holy Spirit out of our lives. I used to have this car. It was an older car. And uh, I decided that when I would park that car, I needed to park it on some cardboard. You want to take a stab as to why I parked it on cardboard? It leaked oil. <laughs> And I figured cardboard was a better catcher than the driveway, right? And so kind of like that old vehicle, sometimes we go through life, and if we are not, which again, I think the church in general has not done a good job teaching this, when we aren't praying that God would fill us with his spirit, we're leaking it out because the pressures of the world, the pressure to conform to the patterns of the world, right, when things go wrong and we turn our eyes away from Jesus. And so we need to regularly, daily pray that we would be filled so that we would be living with access to the power that the Spirit brings. So the disciples, leading up to the text, they prayed for boldness, and the result, the text says in Acts 4.32, is they were all filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the, with the Spirit, then, then the result was they were in and out of prison. Good news, right? That was a joke. So uh, you're like, I don't know if I want the Spirit. They, they were filled with the Spirit. They continued their ministry, and they found themselves in and out of prison. And so when we pick up the story, they are back in jail. And we're going to again look at three markers, three characteristics, three traits of uh, the culture of Christian community. And so here's the first thing I want you to write down if you're going to take some notes today. Why don't you write this down? First marker of the culture of community is a courageous calling. When we live lives together as saints, when we lock arms and live lives together, we understand that we have been given a courageous calling. Look at Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It says this, Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, 
were filled with jealousy. If you underline things in your Bible, you might underline the phrase filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And, and so point one is that Christian community, when saints come together, we understand that we have a courageous calling. We see this here, that, that in, five, in 517 to 21, they're in prison. An angel opens the door and says, go out and start telling people what's going on, and they did so. Now, a few things I want to point out. In 517, it tells us that the high priest and the Sadducees, and let me just clarify, if you don't you know, know all the groups of people, uh, let me tell you a little about the Sadducees. So, first thing, the Sadducees were sad. You see? Uh, you see that? Yeah, yeah. Right? If you want to know the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were not fair. You see? Anyways, all right, so Sadducees, here you go, besides being sad. Here you go. They were basically religious legalists who denied the miracles of the Old Testament. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, by the way, which were filled with miracles, but anyways. So they denied the miracles of the Old Testament. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. And then a really big deal is they denied the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in a soul sleep. And so that's who the Sadducees were. So the high priest and the Sadducees, it says they were filled with jealousy. Again, in Acts 4.32, the disciples were filled with the Spirit. Here, these religious leaders are filled with jealousy. Let me just point this out. Anybody who has false piety, fancy word, what does that mean? It means they don't know Jesus, but they want to claim godliness. You with me? They don't know Jesus, but they want to claim godliness. Anybody who lives with false piety will always be bothered by a genuine movement of God. They will always be bothered by a genuine movement of God because they are seeing people experience that which they have not yet tasted. They are seeing people being affected. They are seeing God move in power, and it's not true in their life because they only have religious activity. They don't have relational identity. They haven't been aligned with King Jesus. And so anytime that happens, the person who is, who is living with false piety, they will reject a genuine move of God. These leaders, I believe, were jealous that the disciples were drawing crowds. They were jealous that the disciples spoke with an authority that they had never spoken with because they spoken only by their own authority, but the disciples spoke by the authority of the Spirit. And so this, this group of religious leaders, the power group, they have arrested right the disciples, but an angel shows up and opens the door and says, go out and start telling people back out of the temple about this life you live, and they did so. And this is why I say that part of community is courageous calling, because these jokers who went out there and started preaching, historians debate this, but somewhere between one and five years earlier, right? Somewhere between one and five years earlier, this same group of guys were the ones who abandoned Jesus at his execution. Same group of guys who hid behind a locked door for fear of being found out and persecuted. 
but something happened. Jesus would restore them. The Spirit would fill them. And now, facing you know, judgment, fa- facing persecution, facing all those things with boldness, they leave that prison based on the angel's words, and they go out and they start speaking again about all that Jesus has done. At the end of the day, beloved, when we do life together, we encourage each other to go and tell. We encourage each other to go and tell all that Jesus is doing and who he is. Second thing I'd like you to write down is this, clear conviction. Clear conviction. Let's pick up in verse 22. It says this, when the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And as the captain of the temple police and chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about, about them, wondering what could have come. That's a great response, right? Hey, so doors are locked, guards are in place, prisoners are missing, right? That, that's a good time to be baffled. Someone, verse 25, came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them, right? Funny how that tune changed, right? Hey, hey, would you guys mind coming with me? I, I know, like, last time I arrested you, I beat you over the head, but, you know. So without force, they bring them in. Verse 27, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? They, they don't even say his name or the name, but this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's awesome, by the way. Let us fill South Texas and the world with this teaching. Amen? You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man, Jesus, of this man's blood. Newsflash, you were guilty of his blood. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Clear conviction flows out of our understanding of a courageous calling that we are called to go and to be salt and light, that we are called to make much of Jesus. And as we understand that calling together, right, then we live our lives with clear conviction. So the disciples, they listen to the angel, they walk out, they go to the temple, they start telling people all about life with Christ. The officials show up, religious leaders, they say, bring the guys to us. The people go to get them, right? Again, they're not there. Oh, newsflash, they're out here teaching again. Oh, we'll, we'll go bring them in. And so they're brought in, and I love it. The high priest says, didn't I strictly, implicitly order you not to do this? I mean, come on, guys. We've been through this whole thing before. You've been in and out of jail. Didn't I strictly order you not to teach in this name? You are filling the heads of the people with this nonsense. And I love the response, clear conviction. Peter and the apostles, it says, we must obey God rather than people. Beloved, let, let me just be clear. There's a lot of discussion and debate 
about things in society and, you know, what, what, what rights we have and what's being stripped away. And those are useful discussions, by the way. But for, for this morning, this is what I want to say. There are two times, I would argue, there are two times the, the, the believer must defy the government. One, when we are prohibited from doing the things that honor God. And two, when we are forced to do things that dishonor God. Right? When we're prohibited from doing that which honors God, and then we are forced to do things which dishonor God, that is where we should, we should defy the government. Everything else, Romans 13, we have to submit. Now, we can talk about rights and all those things. That's a different discussion. And here, they were being told, don't talk about Jesus. That would prohibit them from doing things that honor God. And they say, listen, we've got a clear conviction. We can't do that. We, they, they had said earlier, we can't stop talking about this Jesus. And you know, here's what I wonder today about our churches in America. We, 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 we feel that you know, if our rights are being infringed or being stripped away, and we think about, hey, if the government told us not to talk about Jesus, that's wrong, and it is wrong. And we, get, we, we feel like we get up in arms, but sometimes I wonder why we get so impassioned when we think about the possibility, and Lord willing, it doesn't happen, but we get impassioned and emboldened when we think about the government telling us we can't talk about Jesus. However, now when we clearly can, so often we don't. And I wonder, listen, this is my heart I got to check. I wonder if when we get so impassioned and emboldened, when we think about things being taken away from us, are we more upset about the loss of a right or the name of Jesus being rightly proclaimed? They said, we told you not to do this. And their response was, we can't listen to you. We can't listen to you. We've got to listen to God. And they were busy about They were busy about making much of Jesus. Beloved, clear conviction flows out of dangerous calling, clear calling, courageous calling. Clear conviction flows out of that type of calling where I can't help but make much of Jesus. You know, in over 20 years of serving the church, what I have found is that most of the time when someone who was in the church falls away from the church, most of the time, those individuals in my 20 plus years, those individuals have been doing life alone. Not all the time, but most of the time when people, and by the way, when someone falls away from the church, listen, a lot of debate, I'll just tell you, when someone falls away from the church, they leave the church for whatever reason, there is an issue of conviction. And, and most of the time when someone walks away from the church or falls away from the church for whatever reason it might be, most of those people in my personal experience have been doing life alone so it was easy to walk out alone. Now, l- let me say, there are people that are that they're, they're involved, meaning they may be serving on the dream team. They may be in, in a men's or women's study or even in a community group, and they're living a lie, meaning they are not sharing with the community the burdens that they're carrying. And so you can live a lie around people and still be alone. Does that make sense? Community is something we must choose to embrace. And let me just remind you of this fact. Based on what we see in Scripture, we don't have all the details, but, but Peter, this man who's, who's emboldened here and saying, listen, well, I can't listen to you. i got to listen to God. This same Peter is the one who at Jesus' crucifixion denied even knowing him. And just based on the gospel accounts, when, Jesus, when, when Peter denied Jesus at the campfire, it didn't seem that any disciples were around him. 
You know, the problem that the disciples faced, when, and listen, it was discouraging. The leader of the movement was being crucified, and they didn't fully understand this resurrection talk just yet. But I think one of the downfalls of the disciples at the crucifixion is they scattered instead of gathered. They, they, they ran Peter by himself around people who did not receive Jesus, did not acknowledge Jesus. He's at a fire warming himself, and some girl's like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And seemingly just letting the text read for itself, there's no one there that rolled with him when he was with Jesus. Peter isolated himself. And so denial was easy. We, we, we are able to more successfully and more appropriately live our lives with clear conviction when we live our lives together as saints. And then here's the last thing I want you to write down today. Committed celebration. Committed celebration. Courageous calling leads to clear conviction. And that is expressed in a committed life, a continual life, a celebration. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, right? Talk about a backfire, right? I can't listen to you. i got to listen to God. I'm going to kill you. Not what you want to hear. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And they were persuaded by him. After they, called in the, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming, excuse me, <coughs> and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what, what, what an interesting turn of events, right? I mean, these guys, they've been in and out of prison. God's been doing crazy work, signs and wonders, lame man healed, pray for boldness, filled with the Spirit, get arrested. An angel of the Lord opens the doors, they leave, they start preaching again, they are brought back to the Sanhedrin, to the religious officials, and they're like, we have told you, stop it, don't do this. And their response out of conviction, we, we are not going to obey you, we must obey God. Like, great opportunity for God to do something miraculous, right? And like, poof, they disappeared, right? They, they were taken away or, or, you know, something crazy. Or, or what if the man, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be amazing if then the text said, and so then the full Sanhedrin received Jesus as Savior, right? But they, Peter says, listen, we're going to obey God. We can't obey people. Jesus, you, you crucified Jesus, and he sent the Spirit. And then the next thing it says in, five, in 533, and they were enraged and wanted to kill him. And then this guy Gamaliel speaks up. So Gamaliel was a respected teacher, kind of a philosopher of sorts. 
He says, guys, today is not a good day to kill people. Like, bad day. And outside of it not being a good day to kill people, let me just remind you of some things. Remember Thutis, the dude with the weird name? Yeah. Like, he, he got a following, and, and people were kind of listening to him. And then he got killed, and all of his followers went away. And you remember Judas, the dude from Galilee? He got, not, not the guy that betrayed Jesus, by the way, different Judas, common name. You remember Judas, the Galilean, right? Yeah. So, so he, remember, he got all those people excited, but then he died, and, and they just kind of all went away. So let me just tell you guys, I think you should leave these jokers alone. Just leave them alone. Because if it's of human origin, if this is just themselves trying to manufacture something, it will go away and you didn't have to kill anybody. But if this is of God, you can't stop it. You might even be on the wrong side of things. Now listen, on one hand, Gamaliel is making an absolutely true statement. Because the movement of God cannot be stopped. God is an unstoppable force. Right? And if you're discouraged by the days we live in and you're discouraged because things seem to be going so off the rails and culture is falling apart. If you're discouraged by all those things, let me encourage you to read the end of the book. Jesus wins. And if you've aligned your life to his, you win. And I mentioned this last week, by the way. As the church, we've also got to have a global worldview because we are kingdom citizens living temporarily on the earth. And when things in Western culture seem to be falling apart and, and, and the church is losing ground, just remember that globally there's still an outbreak of revival in Asia, in closed countries. The revival of, of, of the gospel is sweeping through homes where it's illegal to go to church. Right now in Brazil, there is a massive revival breaking out. So guess what? God doesn't lose. False prophets, politicians, anybody else with an agenda, don't, they don't get to derail the movement of God. So on one hand, Gamaliel's absolutely right. If it's of God, it's not being stopped. But I, I wonder if Gamaliel isn't saying things in a way that's maybe a little bit wrong also, because he, he says if it's of human origin, it's, it's going to die but if it's of God, it'll be successful. Now, here's the challenge. You could take that to mean that anything that's successful is of God, and that is categorically false. It is categorically false that everything successful is of God. The scriptures are clear. Listen, there are people that are far from God, and they're able to make means and wealth and build themselves with status. And they have their reward in this life. And the next will not be pleasant if they don't turn their lives to Jesus. I, I realize this next statement, it, it, is, it is becoming more and more inappropriate or unacceptable to say, but let me just make a clear statement. Right now, still today, and this has been going on for a while, uh, the, 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 the religion, the belief system of Islam is growing rapidly. The Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, listen, it used to be you kind of talk about that and it wasn't a big deal. I say that, and I know some of you may be offended. There's a huge temple being built down Trenton Road if you're here in the room. The Mormon church is growing like crazy, but let me just be clear. Neither of those religious structures are of God. Success does not equal God's hand. And the rest of the story kind of speaks that to be true because Gamaliel says, hey, leave these guys alone. And then so all the religious leaders, they like, oh, yeah, oh, oh Gammy. That's what I'd call him, Gammy. Anyways, he's right again, oh, his philosophy. 
Let's just leave them alone. But then someone speaks up. They're like, yeah, but we should probably beat them, right? I mean, Gamaliel, good job. Talked them out of killing them. Didn't talk them out of beating them, right? Maybe we should beat them just for good measure because the text says they were flogged, right? We don't use that language a lot. Now, maybe if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' crucifixion, you think of the flogging or the beating of Jesus. We hear about he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, a whip that had nine strands and had glass and bone and rock. That was Roman flogging, right? Jesus was beaten by the Roman officials. Jewish flogging was much more humane, right? Jewish flogging believed that to beat somebody 40 times was to strip them of their humanity and possibly kill them, and it wasn't a death sentence. So being more humane, they called it 40 minus 1. I don't know who made it a math equation, right? Why why don't you just call it 39 lashes, right? We'll do 40 minus 1 to the square root of 4. I'm like, come on. Anyways, so 40 minus 1, Jewish flogging involved being whipped 39 times by a whip with four strands of leather about 2 to 3 inches in width. And what would happen, just for detail, is the the, the man or the woman, the person being beaten, they would be tied to a post, and a third, one-third of those 39 lashes would be given to the front of the body. And then two-thirds of them would be given to the back of the body. So they have their little meeting. They want to kill him. Gamaliel says, let's not kill him. This might be of God. Let's just let it be. Okay, we won't kill him. We'll just beat them. So they tie them to the post. They whip them 39 times probably thinking they have finally silenced these guys. And it says in verse 31, they rejoiced that they would be counted worthy to be treated shamefully in the name of Jesus. They're walking out of the beating. I don't mean this to be kind of crass. They're walking out of the beating, bleeding from their stripes. And you got John looking at Peter like, high five, bro. Those are nice stripes you got for the name of Jesus. And they walked out counting it How are we worthy to be treated this way in the name of Jesus? They had been beaten and said, don't do this again. Verse 42, and so they went to the temple and they went to the homes and they made much of Jesus being the Messiah. They continue to celebrate what Jesus had started. And so, beloved, here's the question. What would you and I do in the same situation? We, I mean, we, we have denied ourselves, the government, we've been in jail, and then we get beaten. I think that's my, that might be where I'm like second-guessing things. Like, guys, let's go to the next town. This place is not good. Let's go where maybe they don't beat people. And, beloved, here's what I want to share with you, the The beauty of living in community is that, one, we encourage each other to stay committed to the calling we have in Christ. And and two, we help each other live lives with clear conviction. I'm just telling you, if you find yourself living a life that is antithetical, that, that that is opposite of what you experience in here, you show up for worship, praise God, but you go out and you live a completely different life, I would argue most of you that are doing that are not living life in community. And so we understand the calling, we live lives of conviction, but then we, we also help each other continually celebrate what God is doing because, beloved, even in the midst of messed up, broken situations, God can be celebrated. Even when things go off the tracks, 
not according to plan, in the dark night of the soul, when you gather with loved ones because that, that family member has gone from this life to the next, when you hear the diagnosis, when you get laid off, when finances are falling apart, when the marriage is on the rocks, when the child is living a prodigal life, when you can't get pregnant, when all of those things that test us and try us, in all of those situations, there is reason to celebrate, but we are not positioned to be people of celebration if we are not living lives together with the saints because many times you help me see my blind spots and I helped you see yours and we help each other remember that it is not a trivial statement that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And so we live lives of continual celebration. Beloved, the church, the party should never stop. We live lives in surrender and committed to him and even and even when we go through the worst kind of situations, and even if one day, and I pray that we don't see it, but even if one day, if the freedoms we have to freely worship God like we're doing right now are stripped from us, we celebrate and we say, oh, that Jesus found us worthy. Oh, that he found us worthy to be treated shamefully for his name's sake. Because as I've said many Many times there are plenty of preachers you can find on TV and they will tell you all about how to line up to share in the power of the resurrection. But they are woefully inept to tell you about sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul would say those words. That we will share in the power of the resurrection provided we are willing to share in the fellowship of his suffering. That it's not always roses and rainbows. And this isn't poor me, poverty gospel. This is an expectation that life to the fullest, John chapter 10, verse 10, that when Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it to the fullest, that that's actually a bigger life than always having money in the bank and always being healthy and things always going my way. Like that, that is a, that, that's not life to the fullest. That's not life beyond comprehension. When Jesus says you'll have life and have it to the full, that kind of life can't be manufactured. It's the kind of life that understands the suffering of this world, the brokenness of this world, that suffering is a traveling companion that just kind of goes along with us. And life to the fullest is in the midst of suffering saying, Jesus, you are enough. You are my supply. You are my source. You are my everything. And you know what? I still have reason to celebrate because you haven't left me and you promised that you never will. It is continual celebration. And so listen, if you're new, you're like, man, you're talking about people getting saved. And, or you've been here a few weeks and you're like, I don't know how I feel about this. Y'all are all about yourself. Let me just say something. I love what Isato said. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll stay. But here's the reality. If you don't want a church that celebrates, you are not going to like this place. Let us be people like the disciples when told to stop talking about Jesus. They said, we can't help but do it. Like I, I, it's like asking me to stop breathing. I can't not talk about Jesus. And so what do we do? What do we do? We understand this. That if you've said yes to Jesus, you have found your meaning for life. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus, you're still searching. Some of you are probably familiar with a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jew who was arrested in World War II and sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. 
Victor would spend three and a half years in multiple concentration camps. His wife, his mom, multiple family members were sent to different camps. And in this horrific setting where these prisoners were forced to work all day in grueling manual labor, if you haven't ever studied, on a good day they were given 10 ounces of bread and a ladle of watery soup. And that was to sustain them for the next day's work. They worked in the snow with no socks and shoes that didn't fit. So frostbite, all these terrible, terrible conditions. And the will to live was stripped of these prisoners. And Viktor Frankl would write in his writings and say that, that many times the, the, the prisoners of the concentration camps actually died before their life expired. Because they gave, they gave up the will to live because there was no meaning for their life anymore. And so they were lifeless bodies until life left the body. But, but Frankl would write that one day in a conversation he thought of his wife and suddenly things changed. He didn't know if she was alive. She died in a concentration camp, by the way. Didn't know if she was living. But this thought of his wife and the time that they had together and the, the memories that they shared, it became a meaning for life. And Frankl would write a book that's pretty well known, Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, the first half is his, is his telling of his concentration camp experience. And the second half is a telling. He was a psychologist of sorts. And he was a doctor. And he would write about this, this, this field of psychology called logotherapy that he kind of coined and, and ran with. And it was that the greatest, the greatest pursuit, the greatest will to live is, is nothing that it's not wealth or status. But he would say that the greatest will to live is meaning. And when people don't have meaning, then they kind of aimlessly go through life. Beloved, I say all this, say this. If you've said yes to Jesus, guess what you have? You've got meaning. And without Jesus, there is no meaning. So, so what, do we, what do we do living lives with the meaning already figured out? How do we live in the culture of community, encouraging each other to accept our calling, to live with conviction, to celebrate the work of God? Here's a few things I'd give you as action items, right? I don't ever just want to give you information. I want to give you application. And here's the first thing, and, and, and I mean this with all sincerity. If you are not in the habit of daily praying for the, for the Spirit to fill you, start that. We should pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us each and every day. That each and every day we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit to face that which is in front of us. And I'll just say this. I don't want to manufacture a response. But maybe today, if you're in this room, what a powerful testimony it would be if the altar was filled with people coming forward during our invitation just to pray that the Spirit would fill them. Let, let me be clear. The front of the church has no more power than the back of the church. A padded altar does not contain the presence of God. But active obedience put Satan on notice that we're taking things seriously. And maybe for some, maybe for many, your response is simply to come forward, to kneel at this altar and to say, I, I want the Spirit to fill me afresh. And then you pray it again tomorrow, and you pray it again the next day, and we pray for that continued filling of the Spirit. For some of us, the next step is going to quite simply be to choose community. You're not living in the culture of community because you have not yet chosen it. 
And so it's time to get serious and to find a community group that you could be a part of. Uh, maybe it's a digital group for our online family or it's uh, w- one of the ones that maybe you need to start a group. Maybe you need to show up on Wednesday night and go to men's and women's studies. For, for, for our students in the room, you need to be a part of our Wednesday nights, but show up on Sundays as well. For, for our kids, make sure you're getting connected to our kids' ministry. There is community for everyone in our church to be experienced. We just got to make that decision. Maybe it's time to start serving, using your gifts and talents to make a difference. Kids ministry, student ministry, worship, greeter. On and on, the the opportunities are available. And so it's time to start choosing community. For some of us, we need to make a decision today that, that today and then you make it again tomorrow, we are just going to continually celebrate what God is doing. You may say, Chris, well, my situation does not really lend itself to celebrating. It may not, but God does. Your situation may not lend itself to celebrating, but your God does. And so we say, every day I'm going to thank God for something. Every day I'm going to celebrate what God is doing. And let me just say, God has given us a tool to help us be people of celebration that's called obedience. It may be that there is someone here today, someone watching online, and you are having a tr- you're having trouble living a life of celebration because there is an act of obedience that you have delayed. And God's called you to be generous with your resources, and you are withholding that from the Lord. God has called you to be generous with your time, and you're withholding that from the Lord. Maybe he's called you to walk away from a situation, and you keep putting yourself in the middle of it. Maybe he's called you, you've given your life to Jesus, but you haven't been baptized. And he's saying, listen, I'm asking you, I'm calling you in obedience to be bold and to go public with your faith. Beloved, if there's a step of obedience you need to take, then I'm encouraging you to take that step. To position yourself to be a person who celebrates the work of God. And so, again, we need to pray for the filling of the Spirit. We need, to, we need to choose community. We need to continually celebrate the work of God. But here's the reality. I think that there is someone in this room or online just like there was at 9 a.m. And for that person or for those people today, it is not some next step you need to take. It is a first step you need to take. I believe there may be someone here, and listen, you, you're you here because you want to be or because someone asked you to be or because you don't want to be, I don't know. Or you're watching online because you walked in the living room and this is what was on. <laughs> but let me just tell you this. You may have some religion in your background. Religion's not a bad word. Sometimes we make it that way. Religion's not. But I've said this already today. Eternity is not secured by religious activity. It's secured by relational identity. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded teaching of Jesus, that there will be people in, in, in heaven that they will show up and they will say, Lord, didn't we do many things in your name? Didn't we do good activity? And Jesus says, I will look at them and I will say, depart from me because I never knew you. He, he, he doesn't say you didn't do those things. Catch that. Say, Lord, Lord, Matthew, Matthew 7, 21, 23, Lord, Lord, didn't we in your name do many great things, cast out demons, perform? Didn't we do those things? Jesus doesn't respond, no, you didn't do those things. He says, I never knew you. And Satan has made a living getting people to think that the answer is religious activity instead of relational identity. And today, if you don't know if you know Jesus, your next step is to say yes. It's to quit playing games and say, I am hopeless left to myself, and I don't have an answer, and I don't have 
a, a meaning in my life and I don't have purpose but Jesus I believe you can meet all those needs and it's simply believing that Jesus is who he says he is that he did what the Bible says he did that he came to earth and he died on a cross and he rose again and Romans 10 9 that if you believe in your heart and confess through the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead you will be saved so today if you're in this room or you're online and you need to make the decision to trust Jesus as Savior I want to give you the opportunity to do that I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and with heads bowed and eyes closed I just want to say this if today you want to say yes to Jesus and receive him as Savior I'm going to invite you to say a prayer with me say this all the time, the prayer is not a magic formula. Let me tell you, if you don't know Jesus, your answer is not to mindlessly recite some words just because you're at church. But, but this prayer doesn't have to be a string of mindless words because what it can be if you know you need Jesus is instead of being some type of magic formula, it becomes a confession of a Savior. And so if that's you today, you are far from Jesus, but you want to say yes and receive newness of life, then this prayer is your way of saying, Jesus, you are my Savior. And so just pray this prayer with me if today you want to give your life to him. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior. And I believe that you made a way for me to be made whole. I believe you sent your son Jesus to come to earth to live without sin to die on the cross and to pay for sin. And I believe three days later he rose again in victory and defeated sin and death. And so Jesus today I trust you with my life. And I ask you to be my Savior. Would you help me live for you every day of my life? Thank you for loving me first. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.